Welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 513. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or to check out other shows on this network, please visit evergreenpodcasts.com. So this week's interview is with my old friend, Josh Shaloff. Josh is an Emmy award-winning filmmaker who has written, directed, and produced feature-length films, documentaries, and shorts, including directing for ESPN 30 for 30. Among his portfolio, I must say, is my own film, The Last Ring Home. After 25 years of making films in Hollywood, Josh turned his attention to spreading the pleasure of writing. He founded and is CEO of Written Out Loud, designed to give creative kids the same team and community-oriented validation that young athletes receive. In this chat with Josh, we discuss his career, lessons learned, and the power of storytelling. We also delve into his tremendous work at Written Out Loud, as well as reflect back on the film we made together. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com. And please do consider to drop in a little rating and review. And don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Well, who'd have thought? Josh Shaloff, <laughs> after all these years... Getting you on my show, um, gosh, where to start? But I'm going to start with you, uh, asking you, who is Josh Shelov today? Oh, my goodness. Uh, what a question. Well, uh, let me begin by saying uh, how honored I am to be uh, not just a part of uh, this series that you created um, and your podcast, but of your life and, and journey. It's been one of the most rewarding relationships of my entire life without uh, any hyperbole at all. So thank you so much for having me on. Thank you for that, Josh. Uh, we're going to get into some of that woo-woo stuff. But um, so how'd you like to describe yourself? Yeah, okay, exactly. All right. Now I'll talk about myself, I suppose. Um, I, uh, I think of myself as a storyteller, first and foremost. Um, and perhaps the sibling of that is now as a teacher of storytelling. Um, I became, uh, I would say, consciously obsessed with storytelling um, during my time as a filmmaker. Uh, and I'm still a filmmaker, although perhaps with a smaller percentage of my overall bandwidth, the larger percentage uh, of my time is now spent teaching the craft of storytelling, primarily to kids, but also to adults as well. Sweet. Well, want to get into that and how stories beget stories but i would love for you josh to lay down how we met because i i've known my side of the story and i have said it gosh how many times i don't know but i fear that i'm way off so i would love to hear you say how we met and then people who know both sides of the stories will be able to judge how my story has evolved over time yeah i i it would be amazing if we were you know close to each other's version of the story. Uh, although I, knowing both of us, uh, <laughs> neither one of us would let the truth get in the way. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> oh, as I say, print the legend. Um, so uh, my memory goes a little something like this. Um, I had the uh, enormous honor and great pleasure of meeting your father first. So, uh, you know, your father, the, uh, the, the estimable Victor Dial and I were on a Yale alumni chorus tour, 
of Europe and Russia in 1999-2000. It was one of those years. I believe it was um, 1999. Um, but uh, let's see. Uh, immediately, as as he does on so many people, you know, your father, Victor Dial, struck me as just an incredible man, and a, a man I would be fortunate enough to have a conversation with, let alone become friends with. And we began chatting, uh, you know, somewhere either in Russia or in England, where this this tour was uh, wonderful enough to take us. And fairly soon after that, you know, your father began telling the story about his father, uh, Mentor Dial, the senior. And uh, as he told me the story, um, I was completely blown away, as one would be. And then he said, you know, you really have to talk to is my son, who is, of course, named after Mentor, my father. And uh, so we made a plan for me to uh, find you once we returned to the U.S. Um, I can't exactly say now uh, how much back and forth there was. Again, maybe we were on tour in 99, maybe in 2000. But what I certainly remember is that the date that we set to finally have our face to face meeting in New York City was September 11th, 2001. And so we woke up on that day in one world. And uh, by, you know, 930, we were living in a different world. And it was such that such was the the immediate trauma of the moment. And I was in that, uh, by the way, for what it's worth, I was in Midtown, I was on 34th and 10th. Um, my wife was fortunately safely off of the island of Manhattan, and I had no children. My wife was pregnant with our first child on September 11, 2001. So she was safe. I was safe in Midtown, although obviously we didn't feel very safe. We had no idea if the Empire State Building, which loomed over my head, was next. Um, but in the days of that moment, with literally like ash cascading through the air, uh, at some point I realized that I had a standing appointment to meet you. <laughs> and we chose to keep that appointment. And I, I mentor, you tell me, maybe it was because we couldn't get in touch with each other because the cell phones were out or, or whatever it was, but we chose to meet each other face to face that day. And I remember walking down the sidewalks of midtown Manhattan and seeing people covered with ash and, uh, uh, all of the things that those of us who were in Manhattan were seeing. And again, for, for me to simply be, you know, a mile or two north of, of ground zero um, was uh, dramatic. The difference between, you know, being at ground zero and being in Midtown was my day, even though, uh, like I said, the, you, you did see the ash literally falling through the air. And so um, I can't remember the name of the place, uh, that we actually met. Do you remember where? Well, we I met? think it was an Irish pub. That's what I recall sounds, because I, I remember drinking a few Guinness. Yes, that sounds. That's definitely correct. And then I remember we sat down, and uh, you had a you know a pretty serious like package of notes with you, and the all of the correspondences and uh, and histories that you had been building up over the years as you had been you know pivoting into making the. Um, the, the synthesizing and uh, distribution of this story into such a big chapter of your life. And of course, you and I then, you know, created a bond 
that would then go on for what, some 16 years while we talked about ultimately making the movie together that we ultimately ended up making. Does that, well, does that, yeah, that corresponds? Yeah, totally. And yeah. the fact is that between that day, the 11th of September, 2001, and the premiere of the film uh, in November, 2016 on PBS, uh, there was a gap. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and so I'm wondering yeah. what on earth stimulated, because in the end of the day, what happens is that you, in my, this is my narrative, you reappear in my life. We, we might have exchanged. I changed countries a few times. But then all of a sudden, you get this idea to just say, hey, mentor, it's Josh. Do you remember writing that message? So that's foggy. I mean, certainly you're right. We're talking about, you know, 15 or 16 years. Um, and the, you know, I would say that the, the, the larger chapters of the arc between our first meeting and ultimately uh, the, the, um, the resumption of our contact that ended up actually getting the film off the ground. I had a few key chapters in my life in between. So 2001, we meet. And at that time, you're just leaving university. You're a young man going into the world, thinking film, not sure. You're sort of looking for life still. I mean, obviously, you're a young man. Yes. And uh, that's a kind way of putting the fact that I had basically had no success whatsoever as a, as a filmmaker until the very next year. The very next year was um, a, a, a transformative one for me. Um, in which I finally sold my first screenplay. Yeah. Uh, certainly not the first screenplay that I had ever written. It was uh, about the fourth or the fifth, but it had been you know, years of, of hard labor, me trying to figure it out. And so in 2002, I wrote the film that would become Green Street Hooligans, starring Elijah Wood, you're a man of Europe. It's a little bit of a bigger film in, in Europe than it is in the US, but there, you know, it's, it's, it has its fans in the US as well. Um, and that changed my whole life and allowed me to then move to Hollywood and begin really working with some extraordinary uh, professional storytellers and filmmakers as a, as a screenwriter, basically throughout my 30s. So uh, that takes me up until roughly the 2010s, at which point I started pivoting into documentary work. Um, my, my reasons for doing so were largely fueled by stability. So at that time, now in the 2010s, uh, I had three kids and I was looking for a way to continue to tell stories while having a little bit more just sort of ballast and, and, and uh, consistency in my life as a father. And um, I was very lucky to be hired by an extraordinary woman who has unfortunately since passed. Um, but she hired me in 2014 and basically put me to work as kind of a senior documentary producer inside her shop. And what I found uh, essentially as a full-time you know, documentarian was that the principles of storytelling that I had been working on so assiduously on the fiction side were precisely the same on the nonfiction side. Uh, and so it was in her shop that I started to be able to make uh, documentaries that actually got a good bit of distribution, such as uh, several ESPN 30 for 30 documentaries that I got to make during that time. 
And it was when I felt I had my legs under me as a documentarian that I then reached back out to you. And I said, maybe, maybe now, 15, 16 years hence, we, we can actually really make this film in the way that it deserves to be made. Fabulous. I like that arc, uh, Josh. So you were just saying storytelling. It's exactly the same in fiction as it is in nonfiction. At some level, I want to say, duh. But of course, I also want to say, what? Mm. I remember having the opportunity to be on the same stage as Ken Loach, the amazing filmmaker who won Ken Dor and, and many other films he did. Um, I, Daniel Blake. He, so he's a very well-known fiction filmmaker. And his specific angle or way he does things is he likes to do one cut. And as such, I felt as I was listening to him that it was actually very similar to making a documentary. Because when you make one cut, you can't sort of airbrush stuff out. You can't, you know, oh, I heard the airplane. Well, the airplane was there. There's an authenticity and a rigorous reality to the way he shoots his films. And and so that was my first aha. You mean fiction and nonfiction share, can share a similarity. I mean, at the end of the day, storytelling in film can serve an enormous purpose other than just entertainment. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. How would, how would you describe that? Wow. Okay. So, um, Let me take the second part first. Storytelling is serving a purpose greater than just entertainment. Um, you, you, you may have seen at some point Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Yeah. Right. So you know, at the at, at one pinnacle of this of this triangle, the hierarchy of needs that we need as animals, as human beings, uh, food, shelter, oxygen, the things that we need in order to literally not die on a given day. So that's the, the, the absolute pinnacle. Um, but not far behind that is our need for belonging, for love and community. And these are not things that would be nice to have. Entertainment, I think, is a nice thing to have. But our need for belonging and love and community I believe, although it sits just behind food and shelter and oxygen, it doesn't sit far behind. And if you look at the ways that, just say hypothetically, the ways that children around the world are, and we use the term binging these days, watching story after story after story after story, it's not because they are addicted to something, in my opinion, any more than they're addicted to food or oxygen or shelter. People need stories as a means to generate belonging and love and community in their lives. We need each other. And I believe story to be the healthiest expression of our need for each other. Just that simple. If you think of the healthiest expression of our need for shelter as a home, and the healthiest expression of our need for food as a home-cooked meal, I think the, healthy of the healthiest expression of our need for each other is a story. 
and ideally, of course, a homespun one that's told live between two people. But of course, films and books and musicals and plays and storytelling of all kinds fulfills this need, which is why we seek it out and which is why I believe it to be so much uh, more fundamental than quote unquote mere entertainment. That that resonate? Totally. My friend Charlie Gladstone, he goes in the same vein in his recent book, he wrote, art is as important as oxygen. So he's kind of closer to the, the singular, the lowest uh, part of the chain that Maslow had identified. So storytelling allows us to relate to one another. In the stories that are told, there then must be some responsibility in the filmmaker because there are things like ethics and the impact that a film has. And I wonder to what extent that conversation is or isn't, has or hasn't been part of the way fiction Hollywood type films has been going. What, how does that make you think? That's interesting. Um, there, there are, there are some, you know, now that I'm in the, the, the teaching of storytelling business, um, and forgive the plug, but the name of our, our storytelling uh, program and company is Written Out Loud. But at Written Out Loud, um, we talk quite a bit about the values of storytelling that really matter to us. And this is where it can get quite subjective. Um, but nonetheless, uh, I'm, not, I'm not a huge proponent of the two terms that you just used, which are responsibility and ethics. And this is not to say that I don't believe in them in some regard or another. Um, it's simply the way in which we practice the craft of storytelling and teach others to practice the craft of storytelling. So we believe in storytelling as being inclusive, which is to say, we're telling a story, you and I, right now in a way that we wish to include each other mm -hmm. and in so doing radiate that inclusivity out to the audience that is experiencing the story right we're not combative precisely fighting yeah that's right exactly now am i ethically obligated to do such a thing does is it my responsibility to do that i don't know i don't, I don't feel that quite as fundamentally if you know what i'm saying I believe very much in exercising uh, this need to connect, to create belonging, to, uh, to find love, to find community and compassion among my, my fellow people. Um, there's almost a, I don't know, a rectitude around the idea of responsibility or, or ethics <laughs> that I, I, I think is a bit of an ill fit when it comes to storytelling as I perceive it. And again, this is quite um, subjective. I, you know, I preface all of this by saying how subjective this is. There are a couple of other very, very common storytelling uh, tropes out there, such as theme, that I've never really been just a huge proponent of either. So I think of storytelling uh, as, you know, again, from a personal standpoint, as being very redolent of certain values. And then there are other values that aren't quite as important to me. And responsibility and ethics to me are two things that uh, I, I don't think much about. And this does not mean that I don't value uh, the sure. importance as, as they belong to others. Well, the way the reason why I, I bring this up and it sort of 
flits back into the business world where storytelling is all the rage and, you know, how brands should storytell. And, uh, you know, you're telling stories. Well, that's what a parent might say to your kid who's lying. And um, so that's viewed, poo-pooed. And then we have the issue of, well, you got to make money. So if I tell a great story, and like we said at the beginning, we we don't let truth get in the way of a good story. Well, we're sort of fibbing around the edges in order to make the story tell. And if the opportunity lies within the story to help people associate and communicate and commune around the story, well, isn't there some sort of friction between the need to make money and that opportunity, if not responsibility, to help people foster community and make relationships and bond over a classic story? Yes. The short answer, yes, I agree. And it's a very interesting uh, terrain. I also work with brands and I work with with companies as well. Um, and I, I do find that there can and often is great harmony between storytelling as conducted by businesses and business people and storytelling as we teach a nine-year-old to do to, you know, write a story or a book that is uh, just completely uh, uh, quote-unquote for themselves, a keepsake that they might pin to their refrigerator or, you know, print a copy of at the, at the end of it. Um, the point is that um, in the business world, um, certain companies uh, provide a product or a service that benefits the customer. And I think that those companies that are out there, and I would imagine that all of them at least perceive themselves to be beneficial to their customer, are in their marketing telling the story of that benefit. They're telling the story of, here's how you, customer, can go on a journey through our product and service that will benefit your own life, benefit those of your loved ones, benefit your community, right? So, you know, let's just take, I don't know, I'm gonna say Starbucks, you know, just off the top of my head, right? To be alert in your work is a good thing. That's a positive value, right? To be feeling good as you, you know, walk in the door, you know, that is something that Starbucks helps you achieve, right? I, I feel that every morning. I, I don't necessarily get Starbucks every morning personally, but there have been many days in which I have, and there have been countless numbers of people who feel better about themselves, feel more alert, feel more attentive, maybe even feel more generous towards others as they, they've had a Starbucks, which is to say Starbucks is doing good in the world insofar as it provides a benefit for their customers. That's a good story to tell. And that customer journey is one that serves not only the customer, but Starbucks themselves. You know, there's like Adam Smith stuff that we can get into here, right? You know, like Adam Smith really believed that the good business can both grow and benefit the community at the same time. The more revenue comes in, the more people we can hire. The more people we can hire, the more we help the community. That helps us grow our revenue even more, and it's a ben and it's a beneficial cycle. Now, of course, obviously, if ultimately the business owners are putting more into their own pocket at the expense of the customer's journey, then 
we get into areas of greed that are not uncommon, et cetera. But I do believe in the harmonious Venn diagram intersection of storytelling and business. Yeah, storytelling and profit. And, and who would I be to, to not talk about that? The story I tell about Starbucks is it's a safe place to meet in any city. Absolutely. Yeah. The third space, right? That's a, that is, I think, an absolute benefit as well. All kinds of folks out there, obviously, who can't necessarily afford an office meeting in a Starbucks, having a productive business meeting on their way to maybe being able to afford an office, or maybe that's actually their office. Hugely, hugely common. Starbucks is aware of this. And um, that's a benefit that their, that their business provides. Imagine how fast we could solve the world's biggest problems if more SaaS startups would gain traction sooner. Welcome to the Tech Entrepreneur on a Mission podcast. This podcast is dedicated to sharing experiences from B2B SaaS CEOs who are going above and beyond to deliver change that is noticed. You will hear their secrets and learn what is required to build a SaaS business that the world starts talking about and keeps talking about and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. All right. So before we get into the work you're doing at Written Out Loud, I do want to just zero in on this idea. You, you you move from Hollywood back to New York. You're doing documentary. And I, I was captured by this thought that you wanted more stability in documentary. And as I know, anyway, you don't make a ton of money in documentary. Uh, but I was thinking it sounded like it's sort of like one hit wonders or, you know, massive possibilities that can be high delta when it comes to fiction. You can make lots or make yeah. nothing and wait years because it's sort of unpredictable in that respect. On the other hand, the documentary side, you're not going to win millions, but there's more predictability. Yeah, there's also this other notion that within documentaries, although you might correct me, within stories in general, there's a seeking of truth. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I believe it. Uh, I also believe there's a seeking of truth in fiction storytelling, by the way. Slightly I was imagining, yeah. But yeah, there's a very strong relationship between um, honesty and storytelling. And it's a, that's a, we could do an hour and a half on just that collision right there. Um, to, to tackle the piece about stability first, if I had been alone making documentary after documentary, uh, you know this life very well, Minter, you know, it's very feast or famine, it's very boom and bust. But at this time in my life, I was fortunate enough to be hired by a company that not only produced documentaries, but they produced big award shows. This was a well-established company, particularly in the world of sports media. And sports media is a, is a great place to be if you're making documentaries because they require the production of not just uh, continuous content, but repeatable content. And so I was involved in the production of the ESPY awards for ESPN, uh, the NFL honors, which you know honors uh, the best in the NFL in a given year. And see, these are wonderful pieces of uh, recurring work that basically can provide stability as documentaries such as The Last Ring Home come and go. The documentaries that I made uh, for the 30 for 30 series, I, I ended up making three 30 for 30 documentaries while I was at that company. But those pieces are, uh, as you were describing, uh, one of ones. And so it's quite difficult, perhaps arguably as difficult as it is to make fictional stories. 
it's very, very hard to make that uh, a recurring uh, source of revenue and source of stability. And I would not have had it were it not for those big, you know, award shows and those um, perennials, as it were, that were part of that. Right. So you have you've made uh, TV series, uh, big screen films and and the and short films, the We Are film. I saw the trailer for that and I thought that was really interesting. I highly recommend anybody check that out. Uh, we are. It speaks spoke to me in, in every way. Uh, the just the the title We Are was really, I thought, brilliant. Um, and then you have launched this new project. What do you say? I call it new because for anyone listening, it'll be new to them. Um, writtenoutloud.org. And uh, obviously what you're doing there is there's an element of giving back. Tell us how the idea came around. Of oh, Written Out Loud. Yeah. Um, they, they, it went hand in hand with the filmmaking process, which is to say it very much grew out of my fiction and documentary um, production careers. Um, it was essentially uh, what I think of as the most valuable thing that I've ever learned along the way. So as I uh, finally, after 10 years of trying, became a uh, Hollywood screenwriter, followed by becoming a fairly productive documentarian, the most important thing that I learned along the way was the power and value of telling one story out loud. So whether I was making screenplays and films in Hollywood or making documentaries, the essential spinal cord of any project was the out loud campfire version of the story. So you, Minter, of course, have sat down with many, many people and told the story of your grandfather. And you know what happens when you tell that story out loud. The people that you are telling the story to forget that they're alive and they enter the world of your story. And that's a combination of a couple of things. Number one, of course, the underlying facts of your grandfather's story are remarkable. But number two, you are a craftsman and you have through repetition and passion and care and craft turned your grandfather's life into a, let's just say, five-minute story that you can tell in a bar, 10-minute story that you can tell into a bar. And when you tell that story out loud to other people, you are connecting with the old craft, the stuff that connects us with our ancestors and our Campfire stuff. Exactly right. This is the real magic. This is really, really the closest thing to a magic trick that I have discovered in my whole life. There is not a single movie or television show in Hollywood that does not begin with that same process. Hey, Josh, you got an idea for a movie? They don't say, write it up. They say, come in, go into the offices of Warner Brothers, go into the offices of Sony, they hand you a bottle of water. They sit down, they put their phone aside, and all they want is for you to tell them a story that gets them to forget that they're alive for the next five minutes, 10 minutes, 30 minutes that's the stuff that can truly be adapted and disseminated into any form of media that there is. And not just movies and TV shows, but business ideas, a user experience in the world of technology. If you can take people on that unconscious journey 
of leaving their quote unquote ordinary world to talk about the Joseph Campbell of it all, crossing the threshold into some new and special world and transforming themselves through that journey into a new and better version of themselves. You can do whatever you want. Let me and just I, uh, yeah, go ahead. interrupt. I want to break in with how important is the title or the look, the first impression before I even get into the first words that kind of come out of my mouth. So in order to get into that room with a bottle of water to tell your story, they got to know who Josh Shelov is and uh, why, what's he, what's he got? He's got a story. What's it called? Those other little filters that can quickly just be brushed off. And then the second part is, well, you've, you've got your first line, your, your opening gambit. And, and how much is that important to the success of a story? Can you do the slow burn version? Um, yeah, riff on that. Yeah, it, it, the, the way that you get into the room that where it happens, as they say in Hamilton, is uh, definitely a chicken and egg conundrum. Um, and uh, I don't have any answers uh, for those who are like, yes, of course, if I could only get into the room with the Warner Brothers executives, then I too could tell them a story that gets them to forget that they're alive. You're probably right. Um, it took me 12 years and a lot of good luck in order to get in there. And it was only, of course, ironically, but this is true we know of life, when I had become a made guy. When I had when I had an agent and when I had a manager, then and only then could I be the new kid on the block. So um, there is unquestionably an, an enormous amount of uh, jujitsuing and and fighting and inde indefatigable effort and failure and effort and failure and effort and failure to win over that first person that can create the domino effect of ultimately getting the reputation necessary to tell the stories to those who are in positions of power. So it took me a long time. And I was a you know pretty wily and connected guy. I was coming out of Yale. I was coming out of, you know, a pretty good position in sports media. I wasn't coming, you know, from whatever the 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 wilds of uh you know Antarctica. Uh I it's it nonetheless took me a long time and an enormous amount of failure and repetition and repeating that same cycle in order to get in front of people. So that I, I don't have any answers other than persistence to get to the point of telling your story to the kind of studio influencers that can make, you know, Hollywood movies, et cetera. All right. So now the, the door is opened, you're sitting down and the first line, how critical, I mean, is it just, you know, sine qua non, the, the opening, piece to getting that story rip i've got an answer um to me the opening line uh although uh it's it's always good to have a good opening line for sure um the opening moment to me that is the key is uh it surrounds a a principle that we refer to at written out loud as the skin jump the skin jump is what you wish as a storyteller to achieve. You wish your listener to leave their own skin and enter the skin of your protagonist, your main character. Because as we spoke about earlier, you want your listener to forget that they're alive. They do so by, through the magical pathway of empathy, 
leaving their own world behind and entering the world of the story that you are creating, they do so by feeling the vulnerability of your main character. So to take the example of your grandfather, Minter Dai, if I were to simply tell his story chronologically, and by the way, if anyone is listening who does not know the story of Minter's grandfather, the great Minter Dial, watch, read, experience The Last Ring Home. It's an amazing story. But essentially, of course, it is the story of a soldier, a young soldier who leaves the Naval Academy and as a young man is put in charge of a tugboat, sails across the Pacific, the beginning of the war, World War II, and finds himself captured by the Japanese and put in one of these hellacious, hellacious uh, prison camp scenarios that have been dramatized in ways that are now uh, familiar and ways in which many who live still uh, were able to survive. Now, as a storyteller, what I have done is I have described the circumstances of a character who is vulnerable. Now, what have I, what have I done to my listener by doing that? I have gotten them to empathize with your grandfather. They leave their own world behind and now they have entered the skin of this poor and desperate man who is now a prisoner of war in the South Pacific. You create that vulnerability and now you have your audience with you on your journey. So more so than an opening line per se, it's that skin jump moment at the beginning of a story that allows you to bring the audience, the listener with you on the course of the journey and give them that transformation that they're seeking. Love it. All the more so that, of course, the story of empathy or the concept of empathy is uh, obviously one of my hot topics. And I frequently talk about the importance of reading fiction and seeing well-made stories because that allows you to move from who you are into the skin of who they are and possibly gain other perspectives, diversity of, of experiences being the key there. Exactly. So, so written out loud, what you, you, you come at it from experience. You want to, let's say, give back. Exactly. You also, yeah. yeah, I'm sorry. Wanna, you want to make storytelling more accessible is what I, how I kind of read about it. Tell us about your project, what you're doing and, and you know. Thank you, yeah, I, you, you gave me the opportunity to plug my company and instead I ended up uh, at, on a bit of a tangent, but we, we were talking about our principle of story. Hey, that's storytelling. We're going in and out. Hey, yeah, but I'll yeah. bring you, I'll bring you back. You did that to me, I'm gonna bring you back. There you go, thank you. So written out loud, um, was the direct outgrowth of me beginning to see and recognize and value this craft of out loud storytelling. I saw that it was basically a, a fundamental foundational principle in Hollywood. I saw that it had changed my own life and uh, made me think about myself as a writer. Instead, I began to think, well, why did no one ever teach me this when I was younger? I could, it, I could have gotten to where I wanted to go so much more quickly. And so then combine that with being a father and I said, boy, I've got to start teaching this to kids because I think I see something inside Hollywood that so few people get to actually see and understand. So what I began doing essentially was, um, so you know, of course, the, the story of Apple computer. Um, 
Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak did not invent the computer. The computer had been a private product that was used only by academia, it, you know, intellectuals, uh, the elite of the elite inside Stanford and you know University of Texas and so on. All they did was basically repurpose it as a uh, consumer product. They said one of these should be in every home, and he made it beautiful and accessible. What I've done with written out loud is I've basically taken the concept of a Hollywood writer's room. Now, you know, Minter, that the Hollywood writer's room is basically four to eight people sitting around a table creating a single television show. And they use as their writing tools, as much as they use their fingers and the text format, they use their voices, they use their ears, they use their empathy. They use their heart and their desire to connect. They synthesize a single story together. And only after they have achieved a sense of synergy and harmony out loud, then and only then do they use their skills at the keyboard to type out essentially a transcription of their synergy. So the first thing that they do is they they fight and they bite and they claw and they scratch in order to achieve that shared story out loud. Then they go and write their individual chapters by themselves, which we call episodes. All that we've done at Written Out Loud is basically taken that same concept and repositioned it as a program for kids. So kids across the country and around the world almost uniformly dislike writing. They can't stand the way that writing is taught to them in schools. And so most kids, they actually, you know, two, two thirds of uh, US K through 12 kids are writing below their grade level. And in fact, they think of writing as some kind of punishment. Now, I'm hopeful that your kids, you know, I'm sure they were in great schools and they found great teachers and found a way to enjoy writing. But as a general matter, kids really don't like writing. I believe that it's because of how writing is taught. It's not because the craft of writing is inherently punishing. On the contrary, I think it's one of the most enjoyable crafts that I've ever been able to discover and practice. But when you give kids a team, when you say you and these four other kids are gonna write this story together, number one. Number two, you're gonna write it out loud with your voices and your ears and your heart and your empathy, every bit as much, if not more so, than with your fingers in the text-based format, which will be an aftermath, aftermath of that team-based out loud process. And then the third thing that we do that totally inverts what they do in schools is we let kids become inspired and imitate the stories that they actually love. The stories they know by heart, like Harry Potter, Star Wars, Marvel, etc. It's so, easy and joyful to imitate the stories that we already know. We love them. Of course I can imitate a Spider-Man story. Of course I can imitate a Harry Potter story. The internet is filled, filled with fan fiction. And we're not that far apart from the idea of fan fiction I've written out loud. In fact, what we say is that there's no such thing as originality. Everyone is borrowing from somewhere else. It's not where you take things from, it's where you take them to. And so those three ideas, as a team, out loud, inspired by the stories that you love, that's at the heart of Written Out Loud. And now we are providing our program to kids across the country 
and schools across the country who are struggling with uh, with how to get kids to fall in love with writing. First, an anecdote and a question. The anecdote, I was talking with somebody else, um, a senior, uh, let's say over 60, and we were talking about how he works with senior teams and did an exercise where he invited a bunch of 60-year-olds to put on a mask, like a Venetian mask. And he was remarking how easy it was for them to don and then adopt the personality of the mask as if that was them. And it struck me that that was like just bringing the kid out in them, out, out of them. And that is something that we as adults tend to completely strip away. We we stick with our masks and the things we're supposed to say and the things we're supposed to do. And that, that uh, juvenility is driven right out of us. The question, meanwhile, is um, with regard to written out loud, which, by the way, I loved your description. It was not at all apparent to me, uh, the the notion of writing out loud. I just I hadn't sort of cottoned on to this notion. I was thinking more read out loud, and but the notion it, of... Explanation. It, it's a very new approach, although it's obviously happening in Hollywood writers' rooms. As a consumer product, it's, it's still very new. It, it, it need, I, I, This is what I do all day. I explain written out loud to... Well, to thank educate. goodness, and you do it well. And oh. um, But so the, what's the business model? I mean, you're .org, so it's not for profit, I presume. But how do you? Um, what? what yeah, who buys? Have, what sells? We yeah we have a we have a hybrid for profit and not for profit structure, um, and it, basically we were launched as a for profit, but then the demand from various uh, markets and partners who wanted the not for profit version of written out loud to exist essentially necessitated that we create this hybrid structure. I see. So um, we essentially uh, partner with paying customers on the for-profit side. Um, often we call this our family business. So, you know, if you wanted to put your 11-year-old in the program, your 11-year-old could then join us either after school or in the summer as a summer camp. And we would group your 11-year-old with her kindred spirits across the country and soon around the world who also love what she loves, who loves Harry Potter, who loves uh, the Hunger Games, et cetera. And together, and this is obviously, you know, the silver lining of the pandemic, we can create um, groups of kindred spirits regardless of geography. So we can- So create, this is online. This is all online, exactly. This is um, uh, basically stitched together via Zoom and Google Docs until we build our own platform, uh, hopefully in the near future. Um, but essentially, we create what we call a creative crew. And a creative crew is four to six kids working together after school and in the summertime, and they write a book together. The not-for-profit side uh, tends to be partnerships with cities and with schools who uh, you know, serve uh, the, um, shall we say, uh, you know, communities with like free and reduced lunches, et cetera, who can't afford to pay for our program uh, on the family basis. That is very often uh, paid for using federal grant money, educational grant money, state, city, et cetera. Often, uh, you know, it's individual benefactors who have come in and said, you know, look, I want every single eighth grader in this school to graduate as a published author. Every single person who graduates written out loud, whether they are on the for-profit side or the not-for-profit side, Everyone co-authors a book. You're probably listening to this, but if you could see it, I'm showing Minter Dial copies of the books 
that Written Out Loud actually publishes. And every single one of these books is co-authored by a group of four to six kids working together in the methodology that I just described. So essentially, those are our two revenue streams. It's families who are basically buying the program for their kids and grandkids on the one side, and then um, grants, schools, districts, and organizations who are uh, you know, basically buying for lower income students and uh, storytellers, as we call them on the other. Wow. So if I'm a, if I'm a parent and I'm living in London or Europe, are there ways, are, are, are you European friendly in terms of hours for putting stitching gangs together? We're getting there. So uh, I would definitely recommend that you get in touch with us if you're in London and, and you're listening. Um, we have had remarkable storytellers from London in our program, just not very many of them. Most of our uh, user base, most of our customers are in the four US time zones, which I would, and I include Canada, we've had a terrific number of Canadian uh, storytellers and kids through our program, many of whom have become multiple uh, time novelists in our program. The storytellers that have come out of uh, jolly old England, not surprisingly, have been extraordinary and written some of the best books in the history of our program. Um, we certainly expect to be a, a thriving business in, in Europe in the coming months and years. It is a very big part of our plans. There's nothing about our business mentor, of course, uh, that is the slightest bit biased towards uh, the U.S. Anywhere on earth that values storytelling is going to value this methodology. Um, you know, uh, Chinese-American families and Indian-American families are among our biggest consumers and customers. Right. Any family that prizes literacy can turn their kids into a published author using this uh, methodology just Give us a give us a ring, writtenoutloud.org, and I'm I'm confident we can find a way to to work with you either with your children or or with your school as we grow with more and more schools and, and organizations. I just love it, Josh. Thank you so much. I, I'm so grateful for the opportunity, not just to talk about uh, you know my my company, of course, um, but to have such an elevated dialogue with you, my friend, my old friend. I'm so grateful and and proud of you for everything that you've been. And uh, what way would you like people to follow you, get in touch with you? Do you have any particular preferred ways? Uh, I'm on Twitter at Shellov J. Uh, Shellov is spelled S H E L O V. J is my first initial. Uh, written Josh. out loud uh, has its own social channels as well, and uh, there is more and more good storytelling. We we uh, we shy away from the term content. Uh, we, we, we say good storytelling is coming out of Written Out Loud with greater and greater frequencies, including the blog that I write and uh, uh, some of the stories that the kids are writing and, and publishing now every day. So writtenoutloud.org, our social channels are across Facebook and Instagram and uh, Twitter and LinkedIn as well. And then my personal Twitter is, is ShellOpJ. Thanks for the opportunity. Hey, it's been lovely. Go reach out, guys. Get your children onto this program. I love it. Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show and would like to support me, please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash Dial. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And as ever, rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. You'll find the show notes with over 2,000 and more blog posts on MinterDial.com. 
Check out my documentary film and four books, including my last one, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man. So 
The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.